Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Lady Doc Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Maggie Smith, and I'm an OBGYN who specializes in reproductive endocrinology and infertility. I started this podcast to help share different women's experiences within the healthcare system as both providers and patients to help us all have a more positive and productive experience at the doctor. As a general reminder, this podcast is not meant to serve as medical advice and any healthcare questions related to your specific situation should be discussed with your healthcare team. Today, I'm thrilled to have Kelly Hogan on the podcast. I've known Kelly for 10 to 11 years now. We met through the running world. Kelly is a wonderful registered dietitian who specializes in nutrition in patients with breast cancer, and she runs a thriving entire like wellness outreach um, at the Breast Cancer Center at Mount Sinai Hospital. She has more than seven years of experience working with general women's health, disordered eating and sports nutrition, as well as those like various chronic diseases and those who just want to make a positive change in their eating habits. habits. I Today, I really wanted to talk to Kelly specifically regarding nutrition and breast cancer risk. We also talk about nutrition when you're diagnosed with cancer, undergoing chemotherapy, radiation or surgery, and nutrition for cancer survivors. I hope you learned something from this. Um, I know that I did. Specifically, I always think about it when I pour a glass of wine and the breast cancer risk, but we talk all about that in this podcast. Anyways, please join me in welcoming Kelly Hogan to the show. Hi, Kelly. Hi, Maggie. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Good. I'm podcasting from my bed because this, oh, perfect. Yeah, this app makes it um, very good for um, you know lazy podcasting. So here we are. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, and the only I will tell you if your phone goes, just tap it every so often so it doesn't go dark. That okay. seems to like shut off the sound for some reason. I don't know why oh. that is. Yes, okay. we've been we've been every few episodes you know, I discover something to troubleshoot. And so last episode, it was the AirPods with Abby. And uh-huh. we realized there was like a weird delay. And so now, now it's the tapping of the the screen. So got it. Well, thank you so much for doing this, especially on your Saturday. Oh, thank you for asking me. I'm excited yes. to, to talk to you. <laughs> I know. I know. This is actually like a good way to catch up with people. It's so <laughs> having true. Having a podcast. It's so true. Um, so before we go any further, just introduce your, if you don't mind, just introducing yourself, um, where you live, and what you do professionally. Sure. Um, I'm Kelly Hogan. I guess Kelly Hogan Loppinger right now. Yes. Um, although I have not changed my name yet. It's such a pain in the butt. Mm-hmm. Um, I am a registered dietitian who specializes in breast cancer, women's health, and sports nutrition. And I live on the Upper East Side of Manhattan with my husband and my tiny little dog, Peanut. (laughs) Who's so cute. Actually, I don't know if you can hear um, Herman is aggressively chewing a stick in the background. (laughs) I was trying to keep them occupied for the next hour or so. And so Noelle is sitting here in my lap getting um, a belly rub. And Herman is, you know, chewing a bully stick. So hopefully we don't pick that up. Um, yeah, I'm hoping that Peanut doesn't bark, but if yeah, she does, you fine. will hear it. <laughs> yeah, it's really fine. We might have another a dog over here barking. 
So I really, since this is Breast Cancer Awareness Month, I really wanted to talk to you about, you know, what you do professionally and just any, anything that you can give us that helps with either breast cancer prevention with, if you're going through cancer treatment or in the survivorship. So I guess we'll kind of go in order. Um, first, just, you know, in terms, I think everyone's always interested in how they can reduce their risk of certain diseases like cancer. And I know that every time I pour a glass of wine, I do think <laughs> this is increasing my breast cancer risk. Um, so what, if, if someone were coming and I know you work at the breast cancer center at Mount Sinai, um, if, you know, someone, a young, healthy woman, mid thirties, you know, no, no big family history, or maybe even if they do have a family history, are there certain things that have, you know, you recommend as strategies to reduce cancer risk? Yes, definitely. And I think like the alcohol topic is separate. So I will address that in a second. But I think when it comes to like, diet and food and what you're eating, Mm -hmm. um, the largest body of research that we have in terms of nutrition and diet and reducing incidence of breast cancer is sort of on what what I call like a Mediterranean plant forward diet. Okay. Um, So it's not a plant based diet. It's not vegan. You can include animal products if you like them. However, the majority of the foods that you eat should be plants. Um, And so what this one of the largest studies that I usually reference when I'm speaking about stuff like this uh, specifically looked at women following a Mediterranean diet just generally, and then women following a Mediterranean diet supplemented with extra olive oil, and then another group supplemented with extra nuts. And they found that women following the Mediterranean diet supplemented with olive oil had the lowest incidence of breast cancer. And then the women in the nut group had the second lowest, and then the women in the Mediterranean group had the third lowest, and then the control was after that. Um, So what that really points to is Number one, obviously the benefits of eating a lot of plant foods, but number two, the benefits of eating a lot of healthy plant-based fats as well. Gotcha. So that's, that's really interesting. And also getting to your point about animal products, I, I thought about this a lot last year, um, or in the last year rather for myself, because, uh, when I got diagnosed with iron deficiency anemia, Mm -hmm. They did ask me, do you eat red meat? And of course, you know, knowing it's not preventative for multiple cancers, colon cancer, you know, is one that comes to mind. Um, How is there a general rule of thumb or something that you can give people that how much animal product it like, of course, it depends if you like it or not. But Mm -hmm. is there like what is what's a reasonable amount to eat in a week? So. In terms of like red and processed meats, like that's the one group that I do recommend limiting. Mm-hmm. Um, and honestly, it's like based on the person. Like if someone comes to me like who eats red meat like twice a week, I'm not going to all of a sudden be like, eat it once every two months. Like, you know, we can kind of like cut back little by little until they're in, you know, a little bit of a better place where they're having more fish or like chicken or plant-based proteins like tofu or tempeh instead of red meat. Mm-hmm. But I would say in general, limiting the red and processed meats is a good idea. And then having more, like I said before, like fish or eggs are a good, you know, animal protein source if you like it, Greek yogurt, stuff like that. Gotcha. That's good. Yes. I 
in my immediate post, when I realized I was anemic, I was eating more red meat than usual, but now I've gone back down to my, to my regular, which is not, you know, super frequent. Um, but yes, they did ask me if I followed a, a special diet and I guess I, you know, I didn't really think about it that much. I just, you know, avoided, mm-hmm. tried to, tried to limit for, you know, I guess health benefits. And I was like, great, now I'm going to get colon cancer from eating all this red meat. <laughs> well, um, we yeah. forget too that like chicken, turkey breast, um, fish, eggs, like all of those foods have iron too. So you don't necessarily have to just eat red meat to get your iron. Although it is one of the best sources, yes. you know, actually I, I for myself forget that because then, you know, everybody, once they find out you're iron deficient says, go eat a burger, you know, everyone <laughs> thinks of that, but you don't necessarily have to. Um, so, and then just getting back to other kind of lifestyle, you know, mm-hmm. nutrition strategies to reduce your risk of breast cancer, or any cancer, I know Mediterranean diet. What about alcohol? Yeah. So alcohol. So what I often tell my patients is that there is no one food that you can never eat in terms of like your risk for breast cancer, or if you have breast cancer. Um, however, alcohol is in a separate category because there is so much research on alcohol and it's linked to breast cancer. Um, so in the relationship is linear, meaning the more alcohol you drink, the higher your risk is. And that risk starts at about half a drink per day. Um, so if you look at over the course of the week, it means like two to three drinks per week would be like your max. And any more than that may increase your risk of breast cancer. Um, so I usually do recommend limiting alcohol to that much or less, like less is more what I usually say. Um, because there really is like so much research, um, yes. behind it. Yeah. Whenever I do look at the research, it, it is, which is not, you know, super frequent just based on what I do. I'm looking at other stuff generally, but mm-hmm. when I have looked at into it more for myself, this is really, it, it really is quite strong. So, um, I, I do think, you know, that's something that I try to be cognizant of as well. Um, that's, um, well, thank, I mean, it's also nice to have someone who can spat out the literature and not just say, you know, avoid this, avoid that and give you really good, um, really good, you know, granular advice. Um, so moving on to kind of when, if you are diagnosed with Mm -hmm. breast cancer or, and you're going through chemo or treatment, um, is that the bulk of the work that you do is with patients that are in treatment or is it post treatment or what, where do you kind of see women in their cancer journey? Um, honestly, it like runs the gamut. So I see a lot of patients who are just diagnosed if they want to speak with me and they have, you know, nutrition concerns, or they just want to learn about what they can do. I see a lot of patients during chemo. And then I do see a lot of patients after they're totally done with treatment. Um, you know, there are more breast cancer survivors than I think any other cancer. So there are a lot of women who go through treatment and they're fine. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, So, um, so, you know, and there are a lot of things that they can do, you know, at that point in their, you know, their lives that can help possibly reduce risk of their breast cancer coming back. Yeah. So when someone gets diagnosed, let's say they are about to go through chemotherapy and, you know, chemotherapy is really taxing on the body, um, and also affects, you know, nausea can affect appetite. What kinds of nutrition strategies do you use? Are there any sort of recommendations for people who are going through chemo in terms of should they change kind of their macronutrients um, balance or what do you Mm -hmm. suggest? 
Yeah. So it, it truly is different for everybody. Everyone's body responds a little bit differently to chemo. So Mm -hmm. my recommendations for them are often very individual based on what symptoms they're having. They may not have every single symptom associated with chemo. Um, and some women do. So, um, but if they're just starting, you know, I think what I usually do is just speak in general to certain things they can do to help maintain good nutrition, even if they are having symptoms like nausea or taste changes. Um, In terms of macronutrients, I do recommend prioritizing protein just because the body's protein demands are a little bit higher during treatment. Mm -hmm. Um, And really what that means is just making sure there is a good protein source with most of your meals. And again, that could be anything from like eggs, chicken, fish, um, meat, yogurt, beans, nuts, seeds, etc. And really emphasizing the importance of being flexible in the diet, you know, because some foods that you may never think to eat, you know, before you were diagnosed, like women tend to crave certain foods or are really turned off by other foods. And that could change from week to week. So it is really important to just be flexible um, and, you know, go with what your body wants sometimes, even if it doesn't seem to make much sense. That's a, a, a good, um, good thing to know, especially, I mean, I, I see a few breast cancer patients that are mo- mostly for fertility preservation to freeze eggs or embryos mm-hmm. prior to treatment. Um, but I'm, you know, and I'm usually seeing them right before they're hitting chemo, but they, um, you know, they do, that is like, if they were to ask me, which they should not, I usually refer people out to it. I, I stay uh-huh. in my lane. I tell them like, I don't know what I'm talking about when it like, especially even like PCOS, for instance, um, which is something I do see all the time, which mm-hmm. has a, a large diet, can have, you know, a dietary component that helps with it. But I kind of defer on that because it's just such an individualized thing. And also I'm, I don't know, you guys are trained for a certain reason and that is not me. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I'm always referring out. Um, but then getting to, let's say specifically nausea, which I know is one yeah. big component that happens with chemotherapy. Are there certain, you know, I, when, when I'm dealing with nausea, it's generally in relation to pregnancy. So we tell right. people small, frequent meals, like keep saltines with you. Is it similar for chemo or what do you kind of recommend there? It is similar. Yeah. A lot of patients find having like a little something in their stomach helps with nausea. And it really is like those bland foods like toast, mm-hmm. rice, plain pasta, crackers, ginger, like candies or ginger chews can be helpful. Um, Also, like making sure they're taking their anti-nausea meds. I think like a lot of patients are like, oh, I don't need those. I'm fine. And then it hits them and it's too late. Um, So, you know, I always try to emphasize that as well. Um, And then, yeah, just kind of like if any other food, like not on that, like really bland list sounds good to them. I always, you know, tell them to try a little bit of it. I think like the other challenge too is, you know, some women are like, well, all I'm eating is carbs. Like that is bad. Right. Or like, am I doing something wrong? If all I want is like these, like, you know, bread, pasta, rice, et cetera. So, you know, sometimes it really is like explaining the most important thing right now is that you are nourishing your body as best as you can. And if that Mm -hmm. means eating like pasta for every meal for a couple days until your nausea feels better, that's okay. And that's exactly what I want you to be doing. That's a good reminder. Um, It kind of sounds like, it sounds like it's, you know, within that kind of right when they get chemo, maybe right after it, that they have a really like really bad spells of nausea and then maybe it kind of recuperates. So you can maybe kind of change, 
add other things back into your diet once you've gotten over that hump. Does that sound sort of right? Yeah, there usually is a pattern where like they'll not feel great for a few days after chemo and then slowly start to feel better, able to eat like normal foods. And then the cycle kind of repeats itself. And then especially I know a lot of people also, in addition with nausea, they can't eat or drink. Do you recommend them to use like electrolyte drinks, like a Pedialyte Mm -hmm. or just straight water? Like what is your kind of recommendation for when you're not able to get in a lot of fluids? Yeah, honestly, whatever works for them. Some, uh, some women do well, even with like a Gatorade or a Pedialyte or squeezing like lemon or Mm -hmm. any kind of like fruit with water like watering down juice can be helpful. Um, Sometimes I recommend noon, um, which is like kind of a nice parallel from like being a runner, knowing how helpful (laughs) noon is. Yes, yes. Um, So yeah, we try to mix and match with stuff like that until we find something that works. And then going back to other than chemo, you know, there's a lot of patients that are undergoing surgery or radiation. (laughs) Are there certain... Um, nutrition strategies you give patients for the post-operative period when wound healing is something um, that's important or particularly with radiation as well. Any tips or tricks there? Yeah. Well, for healing in general, again, like there is an emphasis on protein because that will help the body heal. Mm -hmm. So just making sure that they are consuming enough protein. They know, you know, what protein sources are and how to include them with their meals. Um, That's really the main one. Um, in terms of radiation, there, there's no other specific nutrition recommendations other than like continue, you know, to try to eat well. If it, you know, some women go through radiation after chemo, so they may still have lingering effects of chemo. So just making sure they're still able to eat well um, is the most important thing. And then do you ever work with patients who are like terminal end of life, but trying to optimize quality of life with their nutrition? Or is that out of the scope of kind of what you're what you do on a day to day basis? No, no, I definitely do. Um, And that is also individual as well, based on what the patient can do, again, what the patient's goals of care are. Yeah. Um, So, you know, that is pretty different from patient to patient. Yeah, I just remember from my time in residency that that can become you know, when you're getting towards, you know, end of life care and looking at goals of care and quality of life issues, you know, being able to get someone to just enjoy food or whatever Mm -hmm. it is, um, is such a big, uh, it was a big like focus at least because there's, you know, you're trying to make them as, as happy and comfortable as possible Mm -hmm. for what time they have left. Um, and then the other thing I forgot to ask you about in the Mm -hmm. prevention sort of section is fasting. Is there okay. any, yes, I, I, I had someone ask me one time if doing a 10 day fast every year reduced uh, their risk of cancer because they read that. No. I said, I'm not aware of any literature. Also, that sounds terrible, but, um, I do like, and then there's the whole concept of the intermittent fasting mm-hmm. and whatnot. Is there any, is there any, anything to show that fasting is beneficial for cancer reduction? No, that is my short answer. (laughs) You know, to be quite honest, it is being researched. Um, There's just like, there's no research on humans right now for me to be like, yes, do this. It's helpful. And it's going to, there's, it's going to be a long time until there is. Um, 
And I think like a lot of my patients, you know, even patients who are totally done with treatment and just, you know, wanting to change their diet or be healthy, ask me about fasting, whether it's like intermittent fasting or whatever. And I think I'm always hesitant to have women fast because fasting is so stressful on the female body. I do, you know, I do think a lot of the general intermittent fasting research out there is on men. And it's just so hard to like equate that research to women because we're so different and our bodies really react to stress, including stress from fasting, especially hormonally. Um, So it's just, you know, it's not something I would recommend right now for anyone, whether they want to reduce their breast cancer risk or be healthier or whatever. Um, Well, that's good. So So that way I don't have to add that to my list of things that I should do to be healthier. I was, I didn't think it sounded like a good idea, but, and I know people (laughs) do different, you know, they may fast for religious reasons or some sort of, you know, meditative challenge. It's not something that interests me. So I'm I'm glad um, it's not, you know, glad, glad to hear that from you at least. And then sort of moving on to like the survivorship aspect of there are breast cancer now, which is wonderful. But then, you know, we're always you know, wanting to, I'm sure it becomes an impetus for change for some people if they did not have a healthy mm-hmm. lifestyle before. What sort of recommendations or strategies do you give women after they get treatment and are, you know, done and just kind of want to reduce their risk of recurrence? Mm-hmm. So those recommendations are kind of similar to what I would give to someone who just wanted to help reduce their risk in general. So it's like going back to that like Mediterranean plant forward diet. And, um, you know, these kind of recommendations are individual too, based on where the person is and what sort of changes they may need to make. But like, oftentimes it is helping them figure out ways to eat more vegetables in a way that is sustainable and enjoyable um, or figuring out a way that they can eat regular meals. I often find that my patients are like skipping breakfast and then like really, really hungry in the evenings Mm -hmm. and like, you know, they don't understand why or, you know, just like little behavior changes like that um, are usually like sort of where we start and what we work on. Um, reducing alcohol if that's necessary. Um, I always encourage regular movement in any way that's enjoyable to you as well, whether that's yoga, walking, running, dancing, um, et cetera. So, and then I know a lot of people get, hopefully don't get caught up with this anymore, but you know, phytoestrogens, is there any, Mm. do you still hear about that? Do people ask you about it? And what do you tell them? Yes. People ask me about that all the time. It's like my number one question that I still get. Um, But so for anyone who doesn't know, like a a phytoestrogen is a plant-based form of estrogen. It's most commonly found in soy products, also things like flax seeds and other plant foods. And I think like back in the day, I don't know how many years ago, it was thought that eating soy products increased risk for estrogen receptor positive breast cancer, which is the most common form of breast cancer, Mm -hmm. um, in which breast cancer cells grow from estrogen, basically. I did not explain that very eloquently, but you got, you you got the point. 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 (laughs) Um, but since, you know, this connection was thought to be so detrimental, it has been studied very thoroughly. And all of the research we have now points to, 
you know, consuming soy products as being beneficial, if not protective against breast cancer, there really is no research showing that it's harmful. Um, I think people just really get caught up in the fact that it's called a phytoestrogen. And I think a lot of people then interpret that to be, oh, soy products have estrogen or X food has estrogen, but no food has estrogen like the estrogen we make in our bodies. Um, And therefore, the phytoestrogens do not act in the same way. Um, So they're totally safe to consume if you like them. Again, if you don't like tofu, edamame, etc., like you don't have to eat them. But I always like to emphasize that it's safe to eat them if you do like them. Well, that's good to know. And yes, it's it's definitely... I think it also becomes like a buzzword type of thing and, and sticks in people's mind. It's sort of how I like bioidentical hormones is one that drives me crazy that always gets thrown around that, you know, kind of it's, it sticks and it sounds, it makes sense to your brain. But then I have to tell people, you know, that was kind of invented by Suzanne Summers to be quite honest. <laughs> um, oh, yeah, I know. So if you don't mind, I want to ask you for a couple more things that are beyond breast cancer that are nutrition related for my own for my own, for people that listen to this podcast are typically usually of the, you know, interested in fertility or other mm-hmm. sort of like healthcare um, topics. But for, I know you don't work directly with PCOS patients, mm-hmm. but I do find that is a group that are often told by people to not eat carbs, mm-hmm. um, you know, thinking that insulin resistance has something to do with it. And if anyone's listening to this episode and wants to know more about PCOS, I have an episode with my friend, Sari Emberman on it. But from what I've le- read or learned, it's not necessarily they have to not eat carbs or not eat bread. Is that correct? Yeah, that's my understanding too. You know, PCOS is a disorder that you know, involves insulin. And I think um, restricting carbohydrates from someone with PCOS is just going to make them really crave carbohydrates a lot. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, have no choice but to eat them and then feel really terrible about themselves when they do eat them. Um, Right. So it's more working with that in mind, and consuming, you know, the correct amount of carbohydrates, correct type of carbohydrates, but also with other types of foods and nutrients that can help keep blood sugar steady. So mainly when I say that, I mean, fiber, fat, and protein. Um, So always making sure there is a protein source, a fat source and a fiber source when you're having carbohydrates can be very helpful in keeping your blood sugar steady and kind of helping with like that sort of issue with in patients with PCOS. Does that make sense? Totally. So kind of like, and not, you can totally eat bread. It's probably best to eat with like peanut butter or something, something that's going to kind of help you with, is that, am I interpreting that correctly? Yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah. That is because, you know, I think a lot of times as well, people are told with PCOS, well, you just need to lose weight, which is not helpful. Um, mm-hmm. And the other, you know, the other thing they're told, you know, I do say some women who will lose weight with PCOS will end up maybe ovulating on their own, but not everybody. So it's sort of, you know, I tell people, sure, it's, it's great for your, you know, it may help you ovulate, but like, don't be discouraged if it doesn't, because it's just not true for everybody. Um, and that, I don't, you know, in general, I also defer, you know, I, I defer to a dietitian in this, when I'm working with PCOS patients on their specific nutritional goals, mm-hmm. but kind of trying to tell them like, there's no, at least from what I've learned from you and from, you know, just kind of my other reading, you know, can't really restricting one whole food group is never really 
sustainable at all. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Especially in patients who are like wired to want that food group. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. And then the other thing I wanted to ask you about was this concept of intuitive eating. And I know that's kind of maybe buzzy in your world Mm -hmm. at all. Do you have any thoughts about that or anything that you can share about what, how the nutrition community kind of views this? Yeah, I guess. So I'm not certified in intuitive eating, to Mm -hmm. be clear. And so I don't work on that specifically with patients or clients. Um, I do really think the concepts are interesting in that, like, and I do sort of work with patients and clients on mindful eating, which is not the same thing. But it really, you know, the principles are similar in that, like, you know, it's really important to think about your hunger and your fullness cues around food as opposed to the calorie content of foods or, you know, following a strict diet. Um, It's important to listen to your body's cravings, um, things like that. So I I guess like the idea that I like is sort of moving away from diet culture in that like you're not following a diet, you're not, you know, restricting foods or following food rules, but you really are listening to your body more. Mm-hmm. Um, and then sort of figuring out in the individual, like what exactly that means for them and how they can make it work for their lifestyle. Um, yeah. If that makes sense. Yeah. I think, you know, I, I have also like, you know, clearly I'm not a trained in it, um, but also been kind of intrigued by it and read about it. I, I do like the idea as well, of like being able to listen to your hunger and satiety cues, just like, are you hungry? Are you full? How does that make you feel? it just kind of makes sense to me. Um, and I do love that we're like, I love Shalane Flanagan's books that they don't have calorie counts or anything mm-hmm. in them because, you know, I, I feel like moving away from just the counting aspect and driving yourself crazy as someone who has that tendency that, you know, mm-hmm. of being very type A and anal will like, you know, want to be very specific about it. It's just not helpful for someone like myself and for a lot of people probably. So Yeah. I mean, it sounds simple, but I think a lot of people have a lot of trouble doing it because, you know, because of everything we've been exposed to for so long and because a lot of women specifically have such a history of either dieting or wanting to follow diets or, or things like that. So. Yes, actually, like to that point, my, my nephew, who's two, my dad was (laughs) giving him lunch one day and just put everything on like a cookie, orange, oranges, like whatever, you know, little toddler meal. And my mom was like, of course he eats the cookie first because, you know, why would you give Uh a two year old? (laughs) But then someone commented on my Instagram and I posted it that, um, you know, actually that's how you, you should be doing yeah. it now or when, you know, that it doesn't put a cookie on like a pedestal of something that mm-hmm. you, you know, is a reward or something like that, which I, th- I thought was interesting and made sense to me. So I, you know, he, uh, and you know, I, I'm sure sometimes some kids will not go to the cookie and go to something else. And other times they might go straight to the cookie. It's probably me, but you know, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Knowing they yeah. can have the cookie all the time, you know, I think yes. that's the idea that like, kids are so good at kind of just knowing intuitively, but we as adults definitely don't do that. And I think we would benefit from it. (laughs) Yes. Oh, definitely. For sure. Um, Okay. Before we kind of close out the nutrition topic, anything, any final words you have for anybody who is hoping to reduce their cancer risk or going through Mm -hmm. treatment, anything, any final parting thoughts on that? Yeah, I think like one of the other big questions I get is people wanting to take various supplements. Oh, um, yeah. 
because either they heard from so-and-so that they are like cancer curing, cancer fighting, they can reduce risk of cancer. I mean, the list goes on. Um, But I think it is, it's so, dietary supplements are not obviously regulated by the FDA or any, you know, governing agencies, Mm -hmm. meaning these supplement companies can put whatever they want into their supplements. They can say whatever they want about them on the labels. Mm -hmm. And there's, there's no one looking in the supplement, seeing, you know, what they're saying is in there is in there. There's also no one looking back for research studies that um, support the claims they're making because there usually are not any. Um, So, and I think a lot of dietary supplements, they could be dangerous. Number one, there's Mm -hmm. not a lot of safety information on them. Number two, some of them, specifically for breast cancer patients, may have estrogen-like activity in the body because they are in such concentrated amounts that we don't know for sure, um, which can absolutely be harmful if you do have a hormone-sensitive breast cancer. Um, A lot of dietary supplements also interact with medications, whether they're chemotherapy, other breast cancer medications, or other medications. I think that's something people don't think a lot about either. Um, So it's always important, like if you are thinking of taking a supplement to number one, know everything that I just said and that these claims that whatever companies are making may not be true. But number two, to know the other risks and taking them and to obviously always check with your doctor or your dietitian before you take them. Yeah. Yeah. That is <laughs> such a good point. I totally forgot about supplements. Supplements is something I get asked about all the time yeah. for fertility. Mm, and mm-hmm. yes, and, and there's, so, you could go down the rabbit hole on supplements. And um, I don't know if you've read this book. It's really good. It's called, Do You Believe in Magic? It's by Paul Offit, and he is actually a pediatric infectious disease specialist mm-hmm. at the University of Pennsylvania. But it's it's a really good book, basically going into different like like vitamin high dose vitamin C for cancer treatment and uh-huh. stuff like that, you know, and and basically sort of showing how how there's no research about you know about mm-hmm. it, but that people will kind of submit to this you know, when they hear something, it sounds good, you know, it's natural or whatever. It's a really good read. It's really thought provoking. Um, Ultimately, sort of at the end, he sort of does undermine his whole thesis a little bit because he talks about, well, you know, if really, even if there's no research showing that glucosamine helps with joint pain, if taking glucosamine prevents you from taking an opioid, then that's probably okay. So (laughs) I'm kind of like, I, I, I I can see that point too, that and also the placebo effect can be strong. But to your point, they aren't regulated. You don't always mm-hmm. know what's in them. And, um, you know, you kind of have to be careful with them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Especially when you're like dealing with something like breast cancer. Yes. Um, yeah. You just, you just want to be careful. So yeah, absolutely. Yes. Um, okay. So then moving on from, you know, breast cancer, nutrition, everything, I did want to talk to you about I know that you, um, you know, gosh, I don't know how many years ago now, I think it was before I even knew you had a pulmonary embolism. Is that right? Yes. I was 27, which was several years ago. But not that many. (laughs) Yeah. Well, 12 to be exact. I won't, I won't even lie about my age, but yeah, it was a long time ago. Yeah. And so, and that was from taking birth control pills. Is that right? So it was, it was what I like to call a perfect storm. Um, Mm -hmm. And I was taking birth control pills. I was also on a long flight from New York to London. I was dehydrated 
and I had a clotting disorder that I didn't know about called yeah. factor five Leiden. Um, not the homozygous, oh, but the, yeah. he- the heterozygous. Yes. So, um, yeah. so yes, all of those things kind of came together and um, I got a blood clot in my leg, which traveled to my lung. And was it like, did you immediately know or what took a, did it take a while for people to figure it out? Or was it pretty obvious as to what happened? Um, no, I, so it was a vacation with my sister. So when we got there, um, my calf was bothering me a little bit, but I'm a runner. I thought it was like a running injury, like a yeah. calf strain or something. So we went through our trip. It was, thought, you know, I was fine. I tried to run a little bit. We walked everywhere. Um, and then I got back and it was still bothering me. I still <laughs> had no idea. I thought it was an injury, but then I had tried to run one day. And I almost passed out because I couldn't breathe. Um, Um, And I still did not put anything together until my calf started to get so swollen, so red and so hot. And those are very, you know, obvious symptoms of a blood clot that I went to the doctor and was diagnosed with a DVT. Um, And then a week after that, you know, I was still I could breathe, but I could it was just, you know, I could feel something in my chest and my heart yeah. rate was a little bit high. So finally I, um, you know, went to the emergency room, they did a CT scan. And even when they were, you know, waiting for the results, they're like, you're probably fine. We're just going to wait and make sure because I was young, 27. I was a runner, like, yeah, no one would ever think. But then obviously when the results came back, they were like, yes, you have a very large blood clot in your lungs. So, and then did you, I'm assuming, did they tell you to stop running or what did they, what did they tell like a young, active, healthy, I've only dealt with pulmonary emboli or embolisms in the setting Mm -hmm. of like pregnancy or Mm -hmm. cancer or something where there's like something else, but someone who's young and healthy, what do you, what did you have to modify in your life? I'm assuming you had to A, stop the birth control pills and B, also maybe take anticoagulation. Did you have to stop running as well? So I did not have to stop running. So they obviously, yes, I stopped the birth control. Um, After I got out of the hospital, um, the physician that I saw there was basically like, you can do whatever you want. It's actually good for you to, you know, be active. Yeah. So um, obviously I couldn't like run that well at first, but I did, you know, try and I was active right away. Um, Yeah. So other than that, I just, I was on anticoagulants of an old blood thinner now, um, called Coumadin. So, Mm -hmm. which is like very annoying to take because you have to get blood tests regularly. You do have to be careful with your diet because certain vegetables, (laughs) believe it or not, can affect how well it works. Yes. Um, yeah. Which again, like dates me because now there are newer blood thinners that are much easier to take. Yeah. Um, You don't have to get your blood drawn all the time. Like, yeah. Is it every week you have to go when you're on Coumadin? It depends on what your, your INR, your, your numbers are. So every like couple of weeks at least, and mine was always kind of wacky because I did like to eat a lot of vegetables. Right. Um, so yeah, I was on those for probably about a year and a half until I was able to come off of them. Gotcha. That, well, I'm glad you're okay. Number one, because Mm -hmm. a pulmonary embolism can be really dangerous, but, um, yeah, that is the one, you know, of course I'm all about contraceptive access and everything. It's the one thing that does make me a bit nervous about making, you know, birth control pills either over the counter, Mm -hmm. um, just because there are, anytime you expose 
a, you know, a person who's never been exposed to birth control pills, they, you will find people who have a clotting disorder, just, you know, otherwise they have, you know, like yourself that mm-hmm. you basically, basically you have one gene that has this, but not the other gene. So going about your normal life, you're not, you know, you didn't have any sort of, you didn't have a blood clot, but definitely with the perfect storm that you described, the long flight. So being sedentary, you know, sedentary for a long time, mm-hmm. dehydrated and, the, you know, birth control pills, all of those things do put people at higher risk for blood clots. And so um, with birth control pills, you know, being one of them that can, you know, kind of, I guess, unmask is the best way to describe mm-hmm. it, like a clotting disorder. So, yeah, I, I that's my one, like, I re- you know. In general, I tell people birth control pills are very safe, you know, depending upon, you know, your history that you're not a smoker or obese or anything. But then there is that caveat that you will, if you've never taken them before, like, you know, just make, I usually like when I was back in residency would have people follow up in one month to make sure they were still Mm -hmm. doing okay and nothing had happened or anything. But yeah. So any, do you have any like tips or tricks or anything for anyone who has, you know, like thinks they may have a, hopefully no one out here thinks they have a blood clot or a pulmonary embolism. Well, honestly, I think for like young women, like it is important to know the signs of things like that, whether you are taking birth control, whether you're pregnant, whether, you know, you're not doing any of those things. Um, but you know, it could still happen. I think it's important to know like the easy signs, like I said before, like if your leg is swollen, hot, red, or, and if it hurts, like that could be, obviously it could be, you know, nothing, but it could also be something serious. So so not waiting to get something like that checked out because, um, because it could be really dangerous if you do that. And I think the same thing, like obviously shortness of breath when you don't normally have shortness of breath. Um, and just knowing like, you know, I think I was sort of an anomaly, but I do think it is more common in young women like me than we know about. Yeah. Um, but I, you know, just again, like knowing the signs and, you know, being really proactive, going to your doctor, if you are concerned, I think is super. Yeah. Important. Yeah. And then, you know, hopefully, you know, pra- that's, you know, hopefully practitioners still, I'm assuming talk to people when they prescribe birth controls, like, Hey, you know, if you've never taken them before, just make, if, if you develop these signs or symptoms, please like go to an emergency room. And, you know, actually we, I do carrier screening a lot as part of my job and, um, we pick up, you know, a good mm-hmm. percentage of people that have fact, you know, factor five light in or something like some sort of clotting disorder that doesn't really affect them, but can for pregnancy or things like that. So yeah. Is, yeah. Um, well, thank you so much for talking to me. Um, I really, really appreciate it. So I'm trying to kind of, you know, refine my end of podcast question um, <laughs> okay. you know, for this, you know, community theater of podcast type of thing. But <laughs> one thing I ask all of my patients when they come in is kind of what are their goals for today's visit? Um, mainly because generally they're coming to me because they're trying to get pregnant or it's, you know, it's pretty obvious, but yeah. I never, you know, they may have something totally out of left field and I want to make sure I'm addressing their needs or what is their goal? Like, you know, so, and it's, so that's my end of podcast question is what's a goal that you have for yourself currently it can be anything like personal, professional, can be cl- related to cleaning the house. Is there anything that you're <laughs> working at? 
Um, gosh, well, I think professionally, for sure, I'm sort of like looking at what I want the next steps in my career to be. I've been doing the same thing for a long time. Mm -hmm. Um, or it feels like a long time to me. So I think, um, you know, looking for something, whatever it is next that I can be really excited about is a big goal for me right now. I have no idea what that is. Um, (laughs) But yeah, I, I mean, I just, yeah, keeping that kind of in the back of your mind, maybe something will spark your interest, you know, it's, you know, or be like, Oh, that's the thing. Um, to that point, do you like working with runners and athletes? Or is it a little like, too close to, you know, not too close to home, but just like, you like to keep your running life sort of separate? No, so so my day job at the hospital obviously is with breast cancer patients, but my private practice is largely with runners. Um, So I love working with runners and helping them fuel for races or, you know, figuring out just how to feed themselves on a daily basis. So their runs feel great. Um, So, you know, that is something I love and something I'm passionate about and something I really enjoy doing as a nice break from, you know, what I do with my day job. So, um, so yeah, that's good to know. I definitely, um, I enjoy that part of my job too. Okay, good. Cause I may uh, hit you up. I mean, I generally eat pretty (laughs) well, but you know, I, I think, you know, within a range, we can all probably improve something, especially if you start doing something different than you, you know, like right now I'm training for a marathon and Mm -hmm. I started, you know, lifting more. And so, and again, like, you know, I, I I think, you know, while I eat fairly well, I'm sure there are ways I could improve. Um, My one question to that is, do you have to keep, I'm sure you have to, otherwise, how would you know, like a pretty dedicated food log for, and how, for how long do you have to do it? No, I, Oh, (laughs) I, I, I honestly like rarely ask anyone to keep food logs. Um, yeah. You have made me really happy because that's my, I'm like, you know, I figure like, you know, I'm just like, I hate like, not I hate it, but like if I forget or like how much is this or what exactly, you know, what exactly did I eat for lunch again? What kind of like two days ago, you know? So, okay, that's good to know because, um, that, that's my, that was my, um, roadblock. <laughs> really? Yeah. There are yes. so many other ways that I can like get a good picture of what you're doing or what you might need to change and not stress you out about keeping a food log for sure. <laughs> oh, that's so good to know. Because I was like, uh, I was like, I really, I, I was like, I really want to like ask you to like help me, but then I was like, oh, I just <laughs> got it. Like this, I got to get wrap my head or get a notes, you know, note app or some sort of app, you know, to help. Okay. That's good. Yeah, to know. That's too much. We yeah. Need to do that way too much. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, okay. And then it's only fair if I share a goal. So, um, so right now I'm trying to not have like, not think too much about, so I'm running a marathon again. I'm doing CIM mm-hmm. in December. So, awesome. and I think like, Thanks. I mean, I'm excited. I think for, you know, it's so easy to cop them like what the absolute time is for the race. I'm trying to think of it more in terms of an execution um, goal. Like I want a negative split, feel like as good as you can at the end of a marathon. I don't know if it's really possible to feel quote good um, at the end, but just to have (laughs) like a very positive experience out of it. But it's so easy to get caught up in numbers and think like, Ooh, maybe I could PR and all this stuff. Mm -hmm. But like, I guess I try and remind myself like the world continues to spin and it's more about the enjoyment of it. So that's my goal is really to try and focus on execution, not absolute numbers. So, yes, I love that. 
Thanks. And like not not look at your watch when you're racing. I feel like I find that to be helpful because then you don't get so stressed out about like what you're doing or what you're not doing or what you should be <laughs> doing. So helpful. Because the other thing that I've realized over the years is like, you can, like if your watch says something, you're like, well, I need to make it say something else. You uh-huh. know, you're you're kind of racing to like a false. You're not doing what you should feel as though you should be doing. And like, there's only at a certain point, there's only a certain pace your body can go towards the end of the marathon. Like it's not going any faster. <laughs> at exactly. least in my experience. So yeah. And yeah, I think I also try and like remind myself like the satellites are sometimes off. Like it just you oh, know yeah, all the time, you know, especially all, in New York, I think. Yes. And like it just doesn't, you know, it's just not helpful. And so yeah, that's a I I like love the idea of actually like running a marathon without my watch totally, but I kind of Mm -hmm. want it. I I do want the data at the end, you know, so maybe I'll figure out a way to kind of like do something with that. But yeah, I actually, um, run on Sunday mornings with a master's men group, uh, and a couple of other people. And they, one of them, Matthew, he was like, yeah, I ran, um, I ran my first marathon, like off of 20 miles a week. Um, he's like, I just, you know, said, okay, just get to 20 feeling pretty good. And then just kind of like try and speed up from there. Didn't really have a watch or anything. I was like, huh, maybe there's something to that. I mean, that (laughs) sounds like a good strategy. Right. Yeah. I know. He's like, I ran a 325. And I was like, okay, that's not normal. But, (laughs) um, but anyways, it's a good reminder. There's more than one way to skin a cat. So (laughs) thank you so much again for talking with me and hopefully I'll see you in, in New York again. I'm so happy to run into you at the fifth Avenue mile. Me too. When are you coming back? Oh, I'm coming for the marathon, actually. Oh, good. Okay. Yes. Yes. And I'll, I'm sure I'll be long running at some point. So I'll let you know. And I'm doing the Dash to the Finish Line 5K if you have any interest in doing that. Oh, I was thinking about it. I might sign up. I'm not Ooh. sure yet. Yeah. So I don't know if you know um, Suzanne Schott, which is Paulin. She's a gymnast, too, from the, from the oh, internet. Okay. Yeah. She's going she's gonna to do it as well. Um, and so maybe we can all like run and chat gymnastics and whatnot. That will be very fun. Yes. <laughs> okay. Well, I will see you in November then. Have a good all right. evening. You too, Maggie. Thank you. All right. Bye. <laughs> bye. Thank you so much to my friend Kelly Hogan for speaking with me. I really loved talking with her and I learned a lot myself. Um, I always know, I always ask her about the alcohol and breast cancer risk, and she always has a great answer that's backed in scientific evidence, which I love. If you want to learn more about Kelly or work with Kelly, you can go to her website, which is kellyhoganhealth.com. She has her own private practice in which she works with people outside of the breast cancer world. Um, But I'm so thrilled that she spoke with me today. Um, I did plan on actually releasing this during October, but you know, life is busy. That's Breast Cancer Awareness Month. Anyways, if you have any feedback, you want to be on the show, really, I do this to hopefully help other people. Um, So if there's anything that you would like to hear about or anyone that you would like me to talk to, I'm all ears. Thanks so much and have a great day.